from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Making Black America is a new PBS docuseries that seeks to share often overlooked chapters of African-American history. One of the directors, Stacey Holman, joins us for more on this project. Plus, last week was Black Restaurant Week in New Orleans. We learned about the importance of celebrating Black culinary traditions while promoting minority-owned restaurants. But first, after decades of exploration or exploitation, Louisiana is covered with thousands of orphaned well sites. The number currently sits at 4,500. New efforts include a $12.7 million grant in federal funding from the Bipartisan Jobs Act to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and a $25 million grant given to the state from the Department of Interior. This project will be focused on plugging well sites in five wildlife refuge sites in Louisiana. WWNO's coastal reporter, Kezia Satawan, spoke with senior advisor for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Jim Guthrie, for more. Could you start explaining what exactly an orphaned well is? An orphan well is an oil or gas well that is no longer producing, hasn't produced for a while, and the owner is either bankrupt or can't be identified are the two most common situations. Could you walk me through how does one plug and remediate these abandoned wells? Uh, Like what are folks exactly doing in the field? They go out, we were out there today in Darbonne, which is a wildlife refuge north of Monroe, uh, doing pre-plugging assessment. So it's measuring what what's coming out of the well, what the situation is. Uh, for the plugging itself, what we do or what the contractors will do is clean out the well, mix up cement, pour it down, fill it up, and then they cut it off about four feet below ground level. Uh, then they put a cap on it and cover it up with dirt and revegetate on the top with uh, native native plants. As how do orphan wells affect the environment? What sort of consequences happen when these sites are left behind? Well, a lot of the wells, the orphan wells date from who knows when, but think the 20s, 30s, 40s. Uh, they're deteriorating. The pipe is um, cracked. It's It's leaking down below. It's certainly leaking at uh, above ground level. So it affects the environment by putting hydrocarbons into the water on the surface. Sometimes uh, saline water is released from either the nearby tanks or the well itself. That can damage for decades the uh, surrounding environment to the well. The other probably major, although it's not a local impact, it's a global impact, is they release methane. And that's what we were checking on today, uh, measuring how much methane was coming out of these uh, wells. That just goes on and on. It's, that's a continuous release. There's no productive value associated with it. It's just methane. Yeah, oftentimes it seems like orphan wells might feel like they're associated with like a loss of jobs to the area. But will this new effort to fix these wells likely create jobs? Yes, it will. One important point on that is these wells aren't producing jobs now. They're abandoned. They're bankrupt. It's uh, So they're not creating anything right now. They're just causing problems. Uh, the jobs are created to go out and fix them. And they're two to five days to plug a well. But you multiply that by 
in Louisiana would be 4,400 wells right now. So they're well-paying jobs that are out there to, to address a long-term environmental issue. Abandoned wells, um, sometimes they can't be identified where they come from, but often are left behind by oil and gas companies. Are there plans to hold any of these companies accountable or are there any frameworks in place to get companies to pay in and support this effort? There are probably th three things going on with that. Uh, one is there's a small fee on oil produced in, in Louisiana. That goes into a state pot of money, about $4 million a year. And then the state goes out and plugs uh, orphan wells. Uh, that is a, 4 million sounds like a lot. It's relatively small and, and really not enough to address the issue. And by example, uh, I would say, let's say 10 years ago, they had 3,000 identified orphan wells. Uh, doing all that work along the way, $4 million a year. And I think it was 2017 or 2018, they counted up again, they had 4,500 uh, wells. So they, they couldn't even keep up with the pace of new wells uh, coming in, uh, much less cut into a backlog. So the one important point here is uh, the 25 million that their um, Louisiana is getting, that's what six times what they're currently spending. Uh, so that's a that's a huge impact. And I know we always refer to it as once once in a generation investment. Hopefully, honestly, it'll be more than that because it's needed. Jim Guthrie is a senior advisor for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Earlier this month, the new docuseries Making Black America Through the Grapevine premiered on PBS. Hosted by renowned scholar Dr. Henry Louis Gates and directed by Stacey Holman and Shayla Harris, the four-part series examines the Black experience over the past 250 years, diving into everything from post-emancipation Black schools to the social media phenomenon of Black Twitter. Here to tell us more about Making Black America is one of the directors, Stacy Holman. Stacy, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always exciting to talk about um, us and our <laughs> projects. You know, this is an incredibly ambitious project. You're really looking at everything from post-antebellum years all the way up to today. So where'd you get the idea? And, and when you came on as a director, how did you figure out how to condense over 250 years of history into a four-part series? Well, it started with actually Professor Gates, and he just was really reading about um, fraternal orders and the fact that the Prince Hall Mason is the first order, um, 1775. And he was just really intrigued by these benevolent societies during this time in American history where, you know, you just hear it's just about slavery. But no, we were we were doing a lot more than, you know, tilling fields um, in this country. And from there, he brought myself and Shayla Harris. We'd work with him on the Black Church. And he's like, I want to talk about these networks and these associations that really happen behind the color line, you know, in the midst of slavery, in the midst of Jim Crow, in the midst of today. 
because um, a story like this hasn't really been told. Now, to tell it was very daunting. Um, I mean, there's a lot of incredible associations that um, really helped form and shape Black America. And, you know, we started at the beginning, the Prince Helmations, and from there identified key moments um, in history where these associations really helped Black people just live outside of just this the tension that existed in the white gaze. And when you mentioned um, Mr. Gates and, and him being kind of the, the start of all this, he, he's more than the host and, and by far not the only big name to make an appearance in the film. Who are some of the other contributing guests? And talk some about how the conversations kind of get everything going into the history of, of, of what each episode is about. Yeah, we had, I mean, outside of we had some incredible historians that sat with us from Eddie Glau to Brittany Cooper to Tiffany Gill. Um, and then we had the scenes where Skip is sitting in the room with some friends um, from Boston and slash Martha's Vineyard. We have Andre Holland. We have the poet Laureate from Boston. Um, we also have Bad Bye Freddy. Uh, people remember, you know, yo MTV raps. <laughs> um, you know, I think the important thing of having this conversation with these people in the room, specifically with Skip, was to really just kind of create the space of what people were talking about, what we were having, or the conversations that we do have um, today, whether it's a barbershop, whether it's a quote unquote literary society, um, or even if it's like a welcome table in Weeksville, which is the oldest town, um, Black town uh, in the New York area. I was looking at a, an interview with your co-director, Shayla Harris, and, and she talked about how often the African-American story is told a bit narrow, you know, narrowly through, through a lens of resistance. And uh, the approach here that you all have taken is to show a fuller picture, to showcase community, mm -hmm. humanity, black joy, black love. Um, so, so how is the film's approach different from, from other documentaries that focus more exclusively on civil rights? It's very different because I think we, we hear about the struggle so much, but we don't hear what's happening outside of the struggle. Uh, we don't really hear the full story that, you know, we had to live, you know, we had to let our hair down. You know, how do we release that tension? How do we just separate our day from, you know, our, our home experience from, you know, our, that community experience that we have. So it's different because we haven't really seen a film that focuses on, the joy that focuses on, you know, the Nadir was a horrible period. However, you have just this incredible black business that's happening during this time. These Madam C.J. Walker, um, Annie Malone, even during the Great Depression, you have black people having rent parties. So, you know, we're being innovative in these moments. And there's always a response to the struggle. And the response is not necessarily always pushing against the struggle. The response is like community. It's gathering, it's sharing, just encouraging each other. It's a look behind the veil that's not seen very often. You, you know, we exactly. do see the civil rights. We do see the struggle, but not often in this period, what was happening beyond that struggle. We are speaking with uh, director Stacey Holman about her latest project, Making Black America. Stacey, I noticed a lot of archival footage really enriches this this project. How did you get your hands on it? And, and what do you think that, that, that this project footage added to the film? You know, one thing I think just doing several history documentaries is just the agency that Black people didn't have in terms of just our image. And that was one thing that we really wanted to find is just the, the earliest images, earliest footage. But, you know, anytime that 
we were able to find a black person that filmed a black event, a black, you know, community was just a gem. And I think it just spoke to that, you know, our, the images that might've been taken and shown in newspapers, there was more to that story. There's another story behind the story. There's a whole life behind that story or behind that image. Now you have a, a very impressive resume of films. I want to pivot just quickly to a, a documentary that you you produced a few years ago. Uh, Tell them we are rising in the story of black colleges and universities. Now, this film explores the pivotal role that HBCUs have played in America, and and you yourself, I know, attended an HBCU, Dillard University, here in Louisiana, in New Orleans. Yes. Can, yes. can you tell me a bit about this film and perhaps the, the similar journey of, of trying to tell a story that's often overlooked or that hasn't been well documented? Um, Stanley Nelson is the director of uh, that film, and it's similar to how Skip kind of started. I, I go between Professor Gates and Skip um, kind of started this idea of making Black America. I know Stanley and his wife, Marcia, were talking with some friends and they were like, you know, is there ever a story on HBCUs? And there really, there wasn't. I mean, there's stories on Booker T, there's stories on maybe the Divine Nine, there's stories on, you know, Thurgood Marshall, W. Du Bois, but there wasn't a just collectively a story that just tells the journey of just, and the importance and the relevance of, of HBCUs. Um, similar to this story, you know, it was, you know, hundreds of years of history collapsing to like, 90, you know, 90 minutes. And, you know, I think as storytellers, what we do is we try to find the connective dots, you know, what is going to inform the next scene, what's going to inform the next scene, what's going to inform the next moment. Um, You know, one of the challenges of that film too, is that not a lot of HBCUs have the resources to preserve their archive. So a lot of schools had some incredible, incredible moments in history, but due to lack of funding for maintaining that archive was unavailable to us. Um, But starting from the beginning that, you know, education was a gem, education was gold for us, and that these institutions served the purpose for free and formerly enslaved, and those institutions still say, you know, serve just a greater uh, importance today than they did almost over 100 years ago. Now, now moving back to to Making Black America, I know this is a film uh, that was made for a wide audience. And and of course, the film is is largely for African-American people who haven't always had the opportunity to see these stories being told. But but it's also for non-Black people to learn about what it means to be Black in America. How do you balance that? Um, Does wanting this film to be seen by a wide audience inform the narrative at all? You know, sometimes it does. Like one question people uh, we've been asked is, are you you afraid you're going to tell some of our secrets? You know, so... (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, I think there's like a wink and nod in there that a lot of us will get um, and some will overlook. Um, And I think it is, I mean, it it is a balance. You know, what do we say? What do we don't say? Um, I think the important thing in telling it to a wider audience is to say that there's always more to our story, Um, to say that we are the fabric of this country. I mean, this country would not be what it is if it were not for the black and brown um, faces that walked the grounds of this, this, this nation. Um, So that is always kind of a general thesis of just a reminder of that we have been here, we are here, we are a part of this narrative. Director Stacey Holman, her latest project, Making Black America Through the Grapevine. You can watch the series on pbs.org. Stacey, thanks again for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. 
From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. New Orleans is no stranger to exciting food events from the Treme Creole Gumbo Fest and the Blues and Barbecue Fest to the King Cake Festival. And of course, there are a multitude of spring crawfish boils. It seems like there's always a time and place to taste the city's unique cuisine. Just last week was Black Restaurant Week in New Orleans, where attendees had the chance to taste African, African-American, and Caribbean cuisine, along with a series of cultural events. Here to tell us more about Black Restaurant Week is co-founder Fallon Farrell. Thanks for being here. Sorry, thank you for having me. Also joining us is the co-owner and executive chef of Cafe Sabisa, Alfred Singleton. Alfred, good to have you here as well. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Fallon, let's start with you. How did Black Restaurant Week get started and what were the initial goals? Uh, Black Restaurant Week was founded in 2016 out of Houston, Texas. And the goal was really to showcase um, the diversity of the Black culinary community. We noticed a lack of presence in a lot of local uh, restaurant weeks and major food events. And so we wanted to create a platform that was all inclusive for the Black culinary community. Everything from uh, your bakeries to your food trucks to your caterers, chefs and uh, restaurants. And it was such a success that we've been growing ever since. Um, We've actually been hosting uh, a Black Restaurant Week in New Orleans since 2018. Uh, It's always been a welcoming city and one of our favorite cities to eat in. (laughs) Now, Alfred, I know this is your first year participating in Black Restaurant Week. Tell us about Cafe Sabisa and feel free to highlight any of your specialty dishes. Well, Cafe Sabisa is a Creole, authentic Creole restaurant uh, that features, you know, authentic Creole cuisine. Um, we try try to mix in a little bit of Southern fusion to kind of stay true to African-American roots. You know, some of the favorite dishes that are on the menu, of course, is the trout Eugene, which is a fresh filet of speckled trout that's topped with a bounty of Louisiana seafood. It has shrimp, it has crab fingers and crawfish tails uh, that's tossed in a champagne cream. And all of that goes on top of that filet of speckled trout. And we serve it with popcorn rice, which is Louisiana long grain rice, as well as some uh, grilled asparagus as well. Um, other dishes, um, of course, we do a New Orleans style barbecue shrimp, which ours has the spike with a little bit of a bead of beer. We also do a dish that's called the coupillon, which is the Creole version of the French bouillabaisse. Uh, this features fresh fish, crawfish tails, Prince Edward Island mussels, beautiful shrimp. Um, and crawfish tails, and we have that in the spicy Creole sauce. Oh, my gosh, that sounds amazing. What, what made you decide to, to participate in Black Restaurant Week? What was the draw for you? Well, I was, being, being African-American myself, um, and, and you know, we, we tend to have a huge following, um, you know, in the African-American community. Um, so, you know, it was only right that we participate in, in this program, um, you know, and it's, it's such a, a great opportunity to showcase and highlight African-American businesses. We're talking with Fallon Farrell, co-founder of Black Restaurant Week, along with Alfred Singleton, who's the co-owner and executive chef of Cafe Sabisa. Alfred is one of many restaurateurs participating in Black Restaurant Week. Fallon, tell us about some of the other restaurants and some of the cultural events happening alongside. 
Yeah, so um, we have uh, over 20 restaurants participating this year uh, in New Orleans, and the list has, has really been growing ever since we've been doing it since 2018. Um, but I think the beauty of Black Restaurant Week is that it's literally something for everyone. <laughs> um, you know, when you really look at the Black culinary kind of landscape, um, it's always assumed that you're going to do Creole and soul food, but um, we have everything from bakeries. Uh, we also have a couple of, of Caribbean um restaurants as well we have vegan uh queen trini uh lisa she's like a great trinidadian uh kind of local cuisine that you could tap into adis nola is a great ethiopian restaurant that has been making waves since they opened i um, mean so i think you know from for me it's always like explaining the challenges which one do i eat first <laughs> and how long how many places do i eat earlier this year we had zella palmer on the show a historian of African-American culinary traditions in Louisiana. She was talking about the rise in successful black female chefs and restaurant owners in the early to mid 1900s. And something she said, she said many of these black chefs had to turn their oppressors into customers, loyal customers. I'm wondering what you make of what she said there. If, if you think it still resonates today. Well, um, yeah, I think if you just uh, historically kind of look at, how most first businesses were started in the Black community. Um, you had the sharecroppers, which came from those working in the fields. And then uh, caterers were actually one of the first uh, Black businesses that was started in this country, which stemmed from people working in the houses and kind of, uh, that was even in my family legacy. So, um, but I think we've also seen a strong growth in just, you know, the Black community and how we support Black-owned businesses. Um, I think there's pride into uh, that support, into knowing that you could walk in and and get the same experience uh, for someone that looks like you and and kind of has the same familiar flavor profiles as you do. And so I think that's the beauty of what's going on in the the culinary space. It's not ha us having to adjust our our flavors and our dishes to fit other communities, we could definitely continue to serve our own, but the food is so delicious that it appeals to everyone. And I think food is a common, you know, connector. I mean, it really unites people um, around the table from all different nationalities. I definitely agree with that. My motto is just to provide a great product. And, you know, that great product is gonna, it's either gonna appease you or it's not gonna appease you. Um, and, and we find that, you know, we can have a ton of people, not just from, the African-American community come in and enjoy what we're providing, but, you know, all national nationalities uh, will come to the restaurant and enjoy what we're providing. Um, we're blessed with such a great bounty of product that we can provide in this, you know, Southeast region that, you know, a lot of people can't find in a lot of different places. So uh, when we just get those ingredients and we put them together into dishes, you know, I think it's, it's, it's something that's custom for everyone to enjoy. Well, we've been talking with Fallon Farrell, co-founder of Black Restaurant Week, along with Alfred Singleton, co-owner and executive chef of Cafe Sabisa. I'd like to thank you both for being on today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest, Senior Advisor for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Jim Guthrie, Director of Making Black America, Stacey Holman, Co-Founder of Black Restaurant Week, Fallon Farrell, 
and co-owner and executive chef of Cafe Sabisa, Alfred Singleton. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Omholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the historic New Orleans Collection.